James chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. Let not many of you become teachers, my brother, knowing that as such you will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in what we say. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is perfect and is able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bit into the horse's mouth so that it obeys us, we direct their entire body. Behold the ships, though they are so great and are driven by such strong winds, they are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So too, the tongue is a small part of the body. And yet it boasts of great things. Behold how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. The tongue is a fire. The very world of iniquity. And it is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body. And sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds and reptiles and creatures is tame and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless God, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessings and cursings. These things ought not to be this way, my brothers. Can a fountain send forth from its opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Neither can salt water produce fresh. Watch it. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. I do not believe that any of us would exchange places with any other people or any other generation. The energy, the faith, the devotion which we bring to this endeavor will light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. My fellow citizens of the world, ask not what America will do for you, but what together we can do for the freedom of man. Freedom, freedom. I have a dream.
my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. Let freedom ring, and when this happens, when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. If we look at human history, we see all kinds of speeches that have been transformative for us as a country, as for us as individuals. Now, I know a lot of those clips, for some of you, you only studied them in your history books. You didn't experience them. Now, there are a few of us that remember some of those events, and there's a very few of us that were actually alive for all of them. I know that Dorothy over here, who is 94 years old, born in 1920, she experienced it all. So these are things that have happened and that we might even consider as positive things that happened in our history and were motivational. Now please understand in our world that just as there were many positive motivational high points, there were many low points. We have on record speeches from Mussolini, from Stalin, from many dictators and people like Adolf Hitler. Hitler was one of the finest orators that existed in his day and he can move the masses. Obviously he moved an entire nation with his words. It's incredibly scary how he was able to do it because he had the silver tongue. Listen to a few of his quotes that were probably given to some of his high-ranking uh, officials. He said this, If you win, you need not have to explain. If you lose, you should not be there to explain. If you tell a big lie, uh, if you tell a big enough lie and tell it frequently enough, it will be believed. Who says I'm not under special protection from God? I use emotion for the many and reserve reason for the few. The victor will never be asked if he, was if he told the truth. I do not see why man should not be as cruel as nature. What good fortune for government that people do not think. It is not true. It is not truth that matters, but victory. Obviously, Adolf Hitler had a God complex that allowed him to treat people as if they were his very puppet. And of course, history records the outcome of this man's life and how this man brought devastation upon the Jewish people and he did it with his entire nation right behind him. Why was it? It's because people believed his words. If anything should sober us up during this political season, it should be that we need to measure way beyond the words. 
So let me ask you this question. So what is the common denominator of the high points and the very low points within our human history? Words. Words. Words that come from a mouth. But please understand, this is just the vehicle that is attached to this thing called the heart and the heart to the mind. And what we see is that when this heart has been transformed, when God has revolutionized the heart and taken it over, then all of a sudden we see that we can speak things that edify, things that would encourage other people. But when this heart is completely untransformed, we see the depth of wickedness, the depravity, the selfishness of man, and we see it coming out in our history. There's nobody here that is... There's nobody here that's going to be like Adolf Hitler. No, we wouldn't do that. But it wasn't that long ago that even in the church, the white man was speaking horrendous things against his black brothers and sisters in Christ. The fact of the matter is we have a stained history because of our words. But please understand, it's not just a stained history. We have a stained presence because what happens in the presence is that we use our words to tear down. We use our words to promote ourselves. We use our words to promote our selfishness, and it is rampant today. Proverbs says this. Proverbs 18.21 says, listen to this, the tongue has the power of life and death. And man, don't we see that in our culture today. I was reading in a review on a website called standforthesilent.org that there are 8,000 student suicides that happen every year because of bullying. Because of bullying. That's 22 children a day die simply because of words spoken to them. We're told in Proverbs 12, 18, it says, Reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Statistics show that one out of four women suffer from domestic violence, and would you believe that, that with that domestic violence is also verbal violence? And that's not to say that men are not victims of verbal abuse as well. Reckless words. Fortunately, we have godly healers who are trained to help people overcome the things that people have said. My friends, if there is ever a relevant topic for us as a church, it is the topic that God wants our faith to tame our tongue. See, our faith and taming the tongue are connected closely together. And if we don't have the faith, the taming of the tongue will not happen. But if there is ever a time for the body of Christ to rise up and to make sure that this thing is tamed for the glory of God, it is right now in this world that we live in right now. So let me ask you, this is a lighthearted question. How many of you, the, as recent as this past week, just be honest, transparency here, you got in trouble by something that you said. Raise your hand. Okay. Yes. I just want to make sure we all are on the same page that we all have this problem. Now, if you didn't get in trouble this week, I could go back to last week and then everybody's hands would raise up. See, we were, we were told earlier in the book of James, said, James said this. Remember, he said, I want you to be quick to speak and slow to listen. Right? I kind of got that wrong, didn't I? No, we are to be quick to listen, and we are to be slow to speak. 
Now, because we have such a problem with the tongue, God has saw fit that he needs to address this over and over and over again with us in the scriptures. And there are some proverbs that I know pierce me to the heart because of what they say. Listen to these proverbs. There's three proverbs here. Proverbs 10, 19 says, when, men, when words are many, sin is not absent, but he who holds his tongue is wise. For he who makes his living with the tongue, that's a, that's a, that's a, that holds me in check right there. Proverbs 13.3 says, He who guards his lips guards his life, but he who speaks rashly comes to ruin. How about this one? The, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. How hard is that to do when somebody's in your face for you to give a gentle answer? And squelch the fire. This is good counsel. In my studies this week, I found something interesting. There is one statistic that came out that says that you and I, somebody did the data and they figured out how many words we speak, whether in written or verbal form, and they said that we spend one-fifth of our life communicating. One-fifth of our life. Now, I know what some of you guys are thinking. You think, I don't talk that much. And your wives are looking at you and saying, you're right, I, you should talk a little bit more. But then there's, a, then there's those that even the odds, the little chatterboxes that just talk, 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 talk. Boy, they even the odds of those that don't talk. And now this is where the husbands are looking at the wives saying, mm-hmm, that's you. <laughs> now, I find it interesting. I think God spends so much time on this topic because he wants us to be good stewards. He wants us to know how we should take care of one-fifth of our life. So we need to ask God to do something in our hearts. Lord Jesus, as we come to your passage, your word, Lord, we don't want to hear from a man. We want to hear from your Holy Spirit that you would do a work in our hearts, that you would help us to see how we need to be a people that edify, that encourage, help us to be that type of person, help us to understand what it is that you want. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, just as last week I had one goal and objective, my goal and objective is that we would be a church that would edify and encourage that that's what we would be known for. So I'll come back to that throughout the message that we would edify and encourage. But in order for us to get there, we have to understand what God has to say to us. James so far in chapter 2 has given us several obstacles to us living out our faith. He's a, being realistic. If we show favoritism, that's an obstacle to fulfilling the mission I have for you to living out your faith. Last week we, talk, or, yeah, we, we talked about how we need to work for God. And that an obstacle to the mission is when we are lazy, when we don't work for God, when we don't have a mission in our life. And we're not working for God, and that's not our perspective. Well, today, the obstacle is our tongue. That we can use our tongue in a way that is dishonoring to Him. We've heard the phrase, sticks and stones may make my bones, but words will never hurt me. That, there could not be a greater philosophical lie that has been perpetuated throughout the years that is so not true. The fact of the matter as a believer, it takes so long for us to build a, a level of credibility with anybody around us, and we can lose it so quick. 
We can lose it so quick. And for the individual that says, you know what? I just say what's on my mind. I don't care what anybody thinks. I just say what's on my mind. We've all met that person. I want you to know that's a dangerous person. That's a very dangerous person. James is saying, no, no. It can't be that way. He has a lesson for us. And you'll notice in this passage, he uses a lot of visual illustrations. So let's walk through it. He starts off, interestingly enough, with teachers. He says this in verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brother, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. Now, since Christianity was brand new, James is the earliest of the New Testament books, this was a new idea. They have moved from a synagogue type of setting on Saturday to now a corporate worship on Sunday. And so there's a few things that have changed. Now, in the synagogue, it was very popular for just a stranger to come in and to stand up and to speak in the synagogues. We know that Jesus did that from the towns that he visited. He would go on that Saturday. He would go to the synagogue, and he would stand up, and he would speak. And we know that the Apostle Paul, on his missionary journeys, as he was going from town to town, total stranger, would go in, and often he would stand in the synagogues, and he would speak. Now, that's perfectly fine if you're the savior of the world or the guy that wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. But for other people, it may not have been as great. So James is raising the bar and saying, no, no, there has to be a standard for the teacher. Those that are going to be teaching the word of God, those that are going to be doing this, there needs to be a standard here. And so James's basic message is, is this, teaching equals influence. Teaching equals influence. We put the bit into the horse's mouth. We guide their entire body. And so he's saying teaching is influence. And so here's the deal. If you have the wrong teacher, somebody that's not spirit-filled, somebody that has ulterior motives, the results can be absolutely devastating as we have seen in different churches. But if the individual is spirit-filled, led by the, the, the Spirit of God, and has the wisdom of God, then the outcome can be good. So James gives two basic parameters for the teacher. Number one, if you teach, you will be judged more strictly. Please understand that this is what keeps me on my knees every single week before I preach and anybody else that preaches up here. There is a fear and trembling that is associated with this. If you don't know what I mean, let me know and I'll let you try to speak sometime. Maybe not here, but I'll let you speak and then you'll find out that there is an element of fear and trembling that comes with it. There should be. But James also says that teaching is for the mature, not for the immature. And that was his point in verse 2. Let's take a look at verse 2. He says in verse 2, we all stumble in many ways. Now James is giving us a reality check. He's saying, you all are flawed individuals. Would you look to the person next to you and just tell them that they're flawed? It's okay, they know it. Just let them know that they are flawed. Thank you. We got that out of the way. We're all flawed individuals, and that's what James is saying here. But here James then goes into a hypothetical situation. Look at this. He says, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is what? He is a perfect man. This is a kind of hyperbole. This is speaking like in extremes like, of course, this 
person doesn't really exist. There is no perfect person. But there's an interesting play on words here because the word perfect could also be translated mature. And the, the, what James is trying to get across is though nobody is perfect, there are those that are mature, that understand who they are in Christ, who have developed the mind of Christ, and those are the individuals that are able to stand up and instruct the rest of the people. And so that's what he's saying. This is the person that can bridle the whole body. Now, let me just give you an admonition, an encouragement to think about. If you think about this, this is a warning for us to think about who we listen to. We are to think about who it is that we spend time listening to in our world. We Face it, we have a world of individuals that speak to us all the time via different podcasts. I mean, there's a smorgasbord of preachers out there. I mean, there's good preachers and there's bad preachers. You can go to Chandler. You can go to McDonald's. You can go to Stanley. You can go to Olstein. You can go to about any person of a power positive type of person that will help build you up. And the problem is sometimes we can cater in our iPads or, or in, on our phones people that will tell us the things that we want to hear. Sometimes we need to have somebody that will tell us what we don't want to hear. And that's why we preach the whole counsel of God's word here so that we can hear what God has to say to us at all times. But also be careful of the silver tongue. I'm not saying that giftedness isn't good. And I'm not saying that God doesn't give people special abilities. But sometimes we can give a higher value to something that God doesn't give himself. We love it when we have people that can move us, people that can tell us stories, people that can bring us to a place of tears. But do you realize that the most popular preacher in the New Testament considered himself a poor orator? The Apostle Paul preached more than anybody else. And this is what the Apostle Paul said. He said, I did not come to you with elegance or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. From what we know about Paul, Paul, he didn't think he was a good speaker. He didn't deliver three-point messages. You know why? Because he was the king of run-on sentences. And he really didn't have illustrations that moved people to tears. But this is what Corinthians says. Paul goes on, he says, But I came to you in weakness and in fear and with much trembling. Isn't that how you want your preacher? He says, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith may not rest on man's wisdom, but on God's power. It is far better to have people around you that will teach you in the humility of God's word with his wisdom and his power. James is saying, teaching equals influence. And then he gives us an illustration of a horse and a ship. He says this, If we put bits into the mouth of the horse so that they obey us, we guide their whole body as well. Look at the ships. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member and it boasts of great things. 
Now, by using this illustration, what James is, is doing is he's reinforcing this idea that teaching equals influence. And so it is a, there's a primary application to teachers, but I think it goes way beyond that. My friends, every one of us have influence with our words. I think that's what he is saying. I think there's a broader application that every single one of us have an influence. Dads, you have an incredible influence on your kids, positive or negative. Where, you, where are your footsteps leading them? Moms, we have the same kind of impact with our kids. Students, you have an impact on other students. Co-workers, you have an impact on other co-workers. Very quickly, you can help create a culture that is toxic, and very quickly, you can squelch that, that, that culture that exists and bring something that begins to edify and begins to encourage. We have that ability. Face it, we live in a world of words today. We live in a world of words. We process so much information via text, via Facebook, via Instagram, via FaceTime, Skype, in office meetings, sales calls, client calls, family interactions, time with friends. And in all those interactions with our words, sometimes what we find in ourselves, even as believers, we find ourselves starting to promote ourselves. We start to find ourselves pretending that we are something that we're not. We, we, we create with our words an image of ourselves that's really not true. We make ourselves look better than we really are. We have a really good way. I, oh, I was late because I got behind one of those stinking school buses. You know you started off late, but you're now blaming it on the school bus because what do we do? We make ourselves look better than we really are. We try to talk ourselves out of trouble. How many of you done that with a cop? We tear other people down in order to make ourselves feel better. That's what we can do on the negative. But on the positive, guess what we can do? As the Spirit of Christ, if He captures our heart, we can edify. We can be encouragers and we can be known for that. Here's the vital principle that I believe James is teaching us here. Please understand this, hear this. This is important. If we understand who we are in Christ, then our words will be used to edify and encourage other people. But if we don't, our insecurities will drive our words. And when our insecurities drive us, we will leave a trail of hurt behind us. I find that we can get into the attack mode very, very easily. There's very, very, various ways that we do that. Now, some of us have no filters, so we have what I call the outright attack. I, I, I just don't like you. In fact, I hate you. Okay, at least I know where you stand with me. Okay, very good. Or maybe there's the passive-aggressive attack that we have. This is the person that it will downplay somebody else's joy. Oh, man, I hear you got a new house. That's awesome. But, man, you should have really thought about that. I mean, I heard there's termites in that neighborhood, and the taxes are real high. Brother, you really got to think about stewardship. Is that good stewardship? And so we just use a kind of a passive-aggressive way of, of tearing other people down. Or maybe there's the one-up. This is where we have jealousy and pride that drives us to comparison. Oh, man, it is so good. You've got a 3.6. I know how hard it was for me to get a 4.0. <laughs> 
We have subtle ways of just exalting ourselves and building ourselves up. And what we do with our words is we hurt individuals and we attack. That's why James compares the words to fire. See what he says. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of our life, and is set on fire by hell. James lets us know here that even as believers, there is a destructive power to our tongue. One word can bring devastation or war to break out, a racial slur, a degrading comment towards somebody else. And what we, what we know from the scriptures here is that our words can really set our, our church on fire in a negative way, where we are tearing each other down. Well, let me ask you, why? Why would we even go there? In my 30 years of history, I've heard some horrendous things come out of the mouths of believers. But why do we do this? Why do we hurt people with our words and thus ruin the credibility of Christ? I want you to know why. Chris, come on up here. Chris is going to be my illustration this morning. You see, when we came to faith in Christ, Something happened to us. Now, Chris Buchanan here, he's a good man. He's in the student ministry. And you got dots on you. Do you realize that? Yeah. Okay. Well, I want you to know, the things I'm about to say, he's just an illustration. These aren't true about him. But what happens is when we come to faith in Christ, we don't come as a whole individual. We come with all kinds of negative experiences in our life. We have some good experiences and some bad experiences. But in our life, with those bad experiences, we have a strategic enemy who loves to attach a lie with every negative experience that we experience uh, uh, in our life. For example, I, I personally was held back in second grade, so there was a little lie that God or Satan wanted to, me to believe in that I was, I was a loser, that I was a failure. Some of us did not compete well because we weren't that athletic. And so the lie was, you know, you're just not going to amount to anything. You're not athletic. You're not cool. And we start to believe these things. Some of us didn't have a good father figure or we didn't have an absentee father. Or maybe, uh, and, and, and as a result, we just think, I'm not loved. I'm not loved. Uh, who cares about me? Or maybe, maybe you had somebody bullying you all the time. And you were a brunt of that bullying. And as a result of that, you started believing the lie that, well, I guess I'm just not worth it after all. Or maybe you had a parent that overinflated. Oh, you are the best thing since sliced bread. Oh, you are awesome. There is no kid better than you. I want, you are so handsome. I just love you to death. You are absolutely. Even with something positive like that, you know the enemy is so crafty, he'll put the lie that you are something else. There is no one better than you. And so here we stand with all kinds of lies attached to us in our life. And that's the strategic, that's the strategy of the enemy. Now, if you and I were to put on our hurt vision, we would look around here and we would see that Chris is not the only one with spots all over him. 
we would see that all over this auditorium, there are people that still have lies that they are battling, even from childhood, that the enemy has gotten them to believe. And this is what I know, is that hurt people hurt other people. That's what we do. We sometimes don't even realize that we're hurting somebody else, but we do it. We use our words to kind of build ourselves up, to prop ourselves up, and we use them to tear other people down. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for your help. Now, here's what we need to know. Just because we come to faith in Christ doesn't mean all the dots are removed. doesn't mean that we immediately go into edify mode. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden we're going to start encouraging and, and building up other people. No, we'll still lash out. And please know that we can't get rid of the dots by human counselors, people that are worldly counselors. We can't do it by sheer will. There's something supernatural that has to happen. This is why James uses the next illustration of taming the animals. He says this, For every kind of beast and birds of reptiles of, of the sea, uh, sea creatures can be tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. What is he saying? He is saying, by nature we are flawed. It is impossible to tame the tongue apart from supernatural things. Yes, animals, they can be tamed. A lizard can be tamed. It can be tamed to sit, roll over, along with our dog, along with a dolphin jumping out of the air but, or out of the water. Uh, but we cannot tame the tongue. It is an impossibility. Humanly speaking, it is impossible. Now, this should give us insight to our unsaved coworker. You know how they just speak things that, that are vile? It's not going to change until the heart changes. Just know that. But what's your excuse? What's your excuse? You're redeemed. God has changed your heart. It should change your heart. This is what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 45. He said, the good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored out of his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, the mouth speaks. Now here's what we need to know. Our words, get this, our words reveal what's going on inside of our heart. If you want to know what's in your heart, listen to the words that are coming out of your mouth. Your mouth is already revealed. Are you hurt? Do you have pain? Do you have bitterness? Do you have anger? Do you have jealousy? Do you have worry? Do you have fear of failure? Please understand your mouth is already ratted you out. All you have to do is listen to your words. You may be the only one that doesn't realize it, but your words have revealed your heart. Let's be real here. We all have evil things dwelling within us. Maybe evil thoughts, evil attitudes, ugly, ugly feelings. Early in my marriage, I realized that there were some ugly thoughts and actions that were coming out in my life. And when I evaluated it, I realized that there was some really, really dark stuff that I hadn't dealt with in my life. And I knew that I couldn't deal with it by myself, so I went to a friend who was a counselor, a trained counselor, and I met with him for about four months, and he helped walk through and navigate through the ugly stuff that was in my life that I hadn't dealt with, I hadn't talked to my wife about, and I needed that. 
And I kind of saw that as the deworming, taking off the lies in my life and understanding. I needed somebody else's input on my life. It was part of my spiritual development. You see, unless we start to understand that Jesus is our significance in our life, we will always use our words to prop ourselves up. But when we understand who we are in Christ, when we understand our value is not in our success, when we understand that our values is not in our looks, it's not in our abilities, it's not in what other people think of us, but rather in Christ and Christ alone, then, my friends, we will begin to be set free and set free indeed. That's what God wants to do to the body of Christ. Remember what he said in Ephesians 5? His job is to present his bride spotless, clean, cleansed by the water of his word. What is he trying to do? He's trying to remove the lies. He wants us to understand who we are. Taming the tongue is possible in Christ. Then he goes on and he says, With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing, my brother. These things ought not to be this way. And these two verses, I think, are the punchline of the passage. And this is what he is saying. He is saying, our words reveal the progress that we are making in Christ. Because if we don't deal with the hurt, this is what's going to happen. We're going to come into the service and we're going to praise God. We might even raise our hands in worship of God. And we're going to sing praise to Him. And then we're going to leave and we're going to unleash a hurt upon people that we love. And we will continue to do that. We'll live this double life. When he says the word curses, he's not just talking about cuss words. It certainly can encompass that. But what he's talking about here is he's talking about the anger and the jealousy and the resentment and the things that we haven't dealt with that are deep within us. And because we have that within us, at certain points, we all of a sudden are vomiting up a verbal bath of ugly upon other people. And he says, my brothers, this ought not to be this way. What is he saying? He said it doesn't have to be because we are redeemed under the power of Christ. We don't have to be like a spring who has both fresh and bitter water coming from it, which is impossible. We don't have to be like a fig tree that bears olives or a grapevine that produces figs or a salt pond that produces false. All impossible, impossible, impossible. We don't have to be hypocrites is what he is saying. What he is actually saying is that there is freedom in Christ and when Christ frees us, then all of a sudden we will find ourselves generously edifying and encouraging those around us. You see, when we're rooted in Christ, we can rejoice in other people's success. In fact, I want you to be more successful than me. When we're rooted in Christ, we can actually take criticism knowing that it's coming from a place of love from somebody else. Here's my question. My friends, what would happen if Mission View became a place of edification and encouragement on a greater level? I think it happens here. Pamela and Gabriel have mentioned to me many times that they have felt so much love immediately. And yet, I had a dinner with somebody a couple of days ago who said, man, when I came, I just didn't feel connected. I, I didn't really... Okay. 
That happens at times. What I take from that is that we need to grow in this area. So in order for us to get to the place of encouraging and edifying where we need to be, there's five things I want to encourage you and I want you to think about. Five things. And if you're willing to do these things, if you say, this is what the Spirit of God is laying on my heart, in a moment, we're going to open the altar. I don't do this very often, but I want us to flood the altar down here for us to take a stand saying, okay, God, I am willing. I want to work in this area of my life, and I'm asking that you do something special. Here's the first thing. Number one, that we see what's going on in our heart, that we actually evaluate the words that are coming out of our mouth and seeing what our words are saying. If you're willing to evaluate, number one. Number two, that we see our need for repentance. You see, when we come to the altar of God, when we go before God in evaluation, we might be just like Isaiah, who when he saw the throne of God, you know what he said? He said, woe to me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King and the Lord of hosts. That's what he said when he came before God. We need to repent of our sin. Number three, we need to gain victory and truth. Some of us need to replace the lie that's in our life with a true victory verse. I encourage you to find that lie and replace it with the truth and repeat that truth again and again. Because Jesus said, the tr- you will know the truth and the truth will what? It's going to set you free every time. That's what he wants. Number four, that we may need someone to come alongside of us, just like I needed someone to come alongside of me and help me deal with the dark stuff in my life. We may need somebody to do that. And finally, we may need to ask for forgiveness from somebody that we have assaulted with our words, that we have been less of an encourager. The last song is called Come to the Altar. And I would beg that we would just evaluate in our hearts. And if this is something that you're saying, I want to evaluate this. I want to be a better encourager. I want to be a better edifier. You're not seen as unspiritual if you stay in your seat. But if God is moving in your heart, let's flood this altar and just lift our lives up before God and come forward this morning for us to do that. Please stand up and do as the Spirit of God is speaking to your heart to do.